One of the most popular, one of the most popular phrases from all of American politics is my fellow Americans ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And that was said by uh, John F. Kennedy on his inaugural address on January 20th, 1961. And, 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 you know, really, you could replace country with any noun, with any gathering place noun. Say, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. But even, I don't necessarily like the concept of church there because, because church has become a building or an organization. And, and, and the church isn't that. Jesus never intended, when he said, I will build my church, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my gathering. I will build my people. And so actually, it's a little bit better to say this. Ask not what God's kingdom can do for you, but ask what you can do for your kingdom or for God's kingdom. And so those of you that are non-fans, you're just checking, the, checking out this Jesus thing. You're kicking the tires to church. You're still not sure about the church. Actually, that first part is for you. You know, ask what God's kingdom can do for you. That's why we are here. That's why we gather so that we can show you what God's kingdom can do for you. But those of you that are followers of Christ, your question isn't, what can God's kingdom do for me? Your question is, what can I do for God's kingdom in order to show people who aren't a part of God's kingdom what God's kingdom can do for them? And so here in Jesus' stump speech called the Sermon on the Mount, really Jesus is saying, is telling his disciples, what does it look like for you to live your life for God's kingdom? For God's kingdom. And so this enti- the foundation to this entire message, to this entire series is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be feel- filled. So the foundation to this entire thing is hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. Are we hungering and thirsting for His righteousness? And that's the bar that Jesus set. You want to find my righteousness? Hunger and thirst for it. That's pretty awesome, right? He didn't say, come, you know, live like me. He didn't say live like me. He said, hunger and thirst. And then I will take care of the rest. I will satisfy you. But see, this quote, this quote that I just said, the reason why it appeals to us, the reason why it appeals to us in his speechwriters, or if John F. Kennedy came with, up with it himself, it was somewhat prophetic of, saying, of seeing where the nation was in 1961 and seeing where the nation is heading. And now today, we are stuck on the first part of that statement. All of us as Americans really are like, what, what can America do for me? I am only interested in what America can do for me. What my country can do for me. And it's almost like his speechwriters, or he himself, if he came up with that line, was a prophet. And see, if we get stuck on that first part of that sentence, that first part of that statement, we have a scarcity mindset. What can my country do? What can I get? What can I obtain? What can I hoard? And when I hoard, when I get it, what do I do? I want to keep it. I want to keep it, keep, keep it in a tight wrap around me. I'm not going to give it away. We're going to have a scarcity mindset. 
And last week, Jesus taught us, Jesus taught us his greater provision. That if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we seek God and his righteousness, what is he going to do? God's going to provide all of our needs. He's going to provide for us. He's going to have a greater provision than what, than what we can provide for ourselves. But we can get into hoarding. Any hoarders here? Any hoarders? Like they made the show for you? Okay, Billy, Nadine. Okay, I was waiting. For, I was going to see if you're going to admit it, all right? See. I've heard enough, you know. You've had two garage sales this year. No, anyway. We can have a scarcity mindset because that's our default, right? We don't have to teach kids to have a scarcity mindset. What's one of the first things they learn how to say and use? Mine, right? Jared was with it. Mine, mine. This past Friday night, we took Elijah and, and all of our family, plus one friend, went to a Cardinals game, and, 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 and there is a family in front of us, and, and their kid was having a, a, a birthday that day as well, and, and the grandparents bought cotton candy for all of them, and I guess they had enough cotton candy left, o- left over or whatever. I don't know if I bought cotton candy. There wouldn't be any left over, but anyway, they were handing out cotton candy to our kids, and, and so Elijah had a, a thing of cotton candy, and I went up and I took a pinch out of it. A pinch, a pinch, not, not a dad pinch, just a pinch. And he was like, hey, hey, I'm like, dude, bro, like, it's not even yours, right? Come on. And I told him, I said, you're going to be a part of the sermon this Sunday now. He has no idea what that means yet. We do not have to be taught to have a scarcity mindset. We are just born with it. And in Matthew 7, this is what Jesus starts teaching about, is the scarcity mindset, and especially a scarcity mindset as it deals with righteousness. As it deals with righteousness. What happens when we become scarce with righteousness? Do not judge others. Do not judge others. And you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And so when we have a scarcity mindset towards righteousness, we will judge people. Jesus dealt with it in his day, and we deal with it as well in our day. The number one thing that non-fans, that non-Christians say about Christians is they are too judgmental. That's the number one thing. Which is a problem, right? Because Jesus said to not be judgmental. It's a huge problem if if non-fans, the number one thing that they say about us is that we're too judgmental. that's, That's a big problem. That's a big problem. But we have to properly define what judgment is. It is not talking about sin. We'll, we'll, We'll get to there. But what it is, is having a scarcity mindset towards righteousness. When we have a scarcity mindset towards righteousness, what do we do? It's my righteousness. I have obtained this righteousness. I have worked hard for this righteousness. You cannot have my righteousness. You have to go find your own righteousness. But, 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 you cannot be a part of me or my group until you have obtained my level of righteousness. That's what judging is. Saying there's no hope for you. You're too broken. You're too messed up. You're too doomed for hell to hang out with me, to be with me in my group. I have worked too hard for this righteousness. That's what will happen if we have a scarcity mindset towards righteousness. We will judge people. And what is the warning that Jesus throws out? What's the warning? 
whatever standard you use is the same standard that will be used for you. So if people stand in front of you and in front of me, and what we do is tell them, you have to earn your own righteousness to be a part of me, guess what will happen when we stand in front of God? He will look at us and say, guess what? You have to earn your righteousness in order to be a part of me. Anybody want to stand there? Anybody want to stand in front of God, ready to use their own righteousness in order to get in? If we as believers or believers, as Christians, think that we obtained our own righteousness, we grossly misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bar that he set was hunger and thirst for my righteousness. We do not obtain anything. And he gave us his righteousness in abundance. That's the gospel. That we as unrighteous people, every one of us, have obtained his righteousness through faith in him. And he has given to us in abundance. And probably in Jesus' day, the the air was just as thick or thicker than what it is now. The tension And so he used a little bit of humor to cut the ice. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Right? You know, get that... You've seen that slapstick comedy, right? The dude with the two-by-fours and wheeling them around and people are ducking or jumping and and he hits one and hits another one. We've seen that slapstick, right? That's kind of what Jesus... He's using some humor. You know, what good is it if you go for a speck in somebody's eye and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of yours and you poke them in the eye? What good is it? Like some friends you are. Now, those of you that have had a piece of sawdust in your eye know how good it feels to have somebody... Pick that out of your eye. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Jesus isn't saying don't talk about sin. Here's what Jesus is saying. Let me use as extreme and as clear of an example as possible. What if I went up to, to, to one of our guys and said, Hey, look. Hey, look. I saw how you looked her up and down. I saw that. And I, you left the room and you came back and you did it again. Shame on you. I cannot believe you could even do such a thing. All in a while, I'm cheating on my wife. Now, that's hypothetical, okay? That's hypothetical. (laughs) Rumors get started, newspapers go nuts. (laughs) But that's what Jesus is talking about. Us trying to get a speck out of somebody else's eye, you've lost it all the while I'm cheating on my wife. Or, a couple years back, what we saw in Colorado of a pastor who was up front speaking against homosexuality ended up getting caught with a homosexual prostitute. Speck and lock. Speck and lock. Jesus was like, yeah, we need to deal with sin, but we have to make sure that we are dealing with it in a sincere heart. Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you can see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. He's not saying don't deal with the speck. He's saying make sure you deal with you and your heart. And actually, one of the core functions of the church that has actually been lacking is is dealing with sin, but dealing with it in a proper way 
uh, way. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly, gently and humbly, Help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. You know, if you're helping somebody out of the pit, what good is it if you fall into the pit? There's, there's no good in it. Okay? So if you were an alcoholic, help the alcoholic outside the bar. Okay? If you were a meth head, help the meth head outside of the house. Okay? That's what Jesus, that's what Paul is saying in, in Galatians. All right? Don't fall in the pit while helping somebody out of the pit. Share each other's burdens. And burdens here are not like just like life is hard burdens. Burdens here, what Paul is talking about is sin burdens. We all know that sin is a burden on our shoulders. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. So what the church, one of the primary functions of the church is, look. You have a burden of sin. Let me come alongside of you and carry that burden with you. That doesn't mean do the sin with them. It's not what that means. It means carry the burden, the weight of the sin. And this is woefully lacking in the church. We either want to get you know pitchforks and, and, and torches, or we'll just ignore it altogether. But we all know that sin is a burden. So what do we do with it? We stand with each other and carry each other's burdens. And so those, some of you that, that, are, that are not a part of the church are like, well, that's talking about brethren. That's talking about church to church relationship. So where does that leave me? We are supposed to do this so well that you look at us and go, I have a burden. Can, can you help me? And we go, yeah, absolutely. What goes farther? Judging people for for their sin or helping to carry the burden? What goes farther? What would go farther for you? Somebody judging or somebody helping you carry the burden? So how often are we supposed to do this? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. Look, what do the, what do the, what do the hymnists say? Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. My heart is prone to wander away from you. You must warn each other. How often? Every day. While it is still today. You know, the writer throughout the whole tomorrow never gets here argument there, yeah? So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. See, in the first century, Acts 2, we see this, that they met together every day. And so that one of the functions of meeting together every day was to encourage each other and warn each other and challenge each other to overcome sin in their life. Now, some of you are like, oh no, we're supposed to meet at church every day? No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I, what I mean. For the first time in the history of the earth, or for the first time since the first century, we have the ability to encourage each other every day. It's called Facebook, Twitter, texting, phone call, FaceTime, anything, anything. And a lot of you talk daily through those mediums. 
And they help function and help bring us closer together through those mediums. But what if, what if, what if you got a text from somebody or a message from somebody every day? Hunger and thirst for righteousness today. Knock it out of the park today. Hunger and thirst for righteousness today. What if we got that text daily? What if we got that daily? Would that guarantee we wouldn't sin? Absolutely not. But I think it would change our perspective to the day, wouldn't it? I think it would change our perspective to the day. And I know that I've got somebody in my corner ready to go to battle for me when everything doesn't go right. That's the way the church is supposed to function. And what Jesus is setting up is that his people, his disciples, his followers are supposed to be a safe people. That we can bring any sin into here among this people and we say, I'll carry it. I'll help you carry it. Christ carried my sin. I will help you carry yours. And if you have fallen out of church because you've experienced the opposite, I'm sorry, but I hope that you see from the words of Christ that that's not the way he intended. Now, we don't judge that church. We just move on with our lives. And we as cross pointers, we do it differently because Jesus has spoken. And we take on our shoulders and try single-handedly to try and change the perception of non-believers that Christians are judgmental. That we're all like, oh yeah, I'll take that on my shoulders to go change that perception. And that we as cross-pointers say, we will single-handedly change the perceptions of Christians among those who are not Christians. And we will go and we will bear their burden. So what if that co-worker, that person in school, we go to them and bear their, the burden of their sin with them instead of point a finger at, at them. What if? What if? But as I said earlier, we all have drift to scarcity mindset. Actually, I'm sorry, I skipped something. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then they will turn back and attack you. And if you're like me, you're like, where did Jesus just go there? <laughs> in, in other translations, the first part is actually, don't throw what is holy before dogs, which makes it even more confusing, right? Don't think nice little pets, you know, nice little pom-pom pets. Ooh, cute doggy. Think junkyard dog, trash heap dog, eating from the trash. They were unclean animals uh, back in Jesus' day. And then pigs were unclean animals as well. And so what is Jesus getting at? He just talked about the scarcity mindset. And what I think he is saying is he's given one sentence. Notice one sentence in this, this paragraph, in this, in this entire thing. One sentence towards overabundance towards overabundance so what what he's saying uh, maybe you've experienced this amongst a personal friend or 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 or, or a, a personal relationship that you said something to somebody and and it was a help to them or you were trying to be a help to them or trying to bring them out of something or or, or something or another or they immediately turned on you or later they turned on you with that with the very words you said or through the through the telephone you know through the through the whole grapevine deal and it got back to you that they were upset because of the something you said 
And you're like, I was just trying to help, but it ended up hurting you both. Or some of you, some of you are famous enough to be misquoted by the news. This is what Jesus is saying. Those of you that understand what I'm saying when I say this, just Bill Belichick it. Just say nothing. It's better sometimes just to say nothing than it is to give somebody something that will hurt them and hurt you. There is a, such a thing of overabundance. But you notice he gives one sentence in the midst of this entire passage. Scarcity is the bigger warning here. But he said, just be careful with overabundance and just be wise to make sure when you give somebody something, whether it be provision or whether it be righteousness or something that that Jesus taught, make sure that it's not going to hurt you or them. Don't judge them. Don't be mean to them. Don't be harsh. Just keep your hands, keep your hand close to your chest. There's some times that you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, like the great theologian Kenny Rogers said, right? But we all, again, the warning is scarcity. And so we all drift towards scarcity. How do we make sure we don't drift towards scarcity? Keep on asking, 7-7. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if your sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? That little last statement, I think, is supposed to be humorous as well that that he's talking about these gifts you know as as a father when your kid asks for bread you give him a stone and when your kid asks for a fish you give him a snake and and again some of you may be like man this is just weird where is he going he seems to be ping-ponging around and he's getting to the end of his sermon is he just trying to hit stuff so far, we see that Jesus is a brilliant master teacher and everything is, is in a straight line. And so we've got to see how this is still in a straight line. Jesus hasn't gone crazy here. Jesus hasn't gone crazy. But I do believe Jesus has a little bit of house in him. Television show, house. Jesus does. He hasn't gone crazy. But forgive me as I say this, but Jesus has got a little bit of crazy in him. Just read the Gospels. You're like, I don't know about it. Just read the Gospels. There are times that you're just like, he's gone, he's gone nuts. John 6. In order to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Excuse me? Okay, there's a little bit of crazy in that. And what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing is getting you to go, huh? Excuse me? What are you talking about? He wants us to get to that moment of going, has he lost it? I need a clarification here. And so here, he's, he, what's his deal with bread and, and, and stone? Here, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Don't think, when, when, if your kid asked you today, can we have a loaf of bread with dinner tonight? You would think loaf, bag, sliced bread. Back in that day, think artisan. Lump of bread thrown in the oven, 
come out artisan bread. And so here's dad walking up to son, and from a distance, son sees dad and goes, ah, that's a loaf of bread. He can start to smell it. He can start to taste it. He has to wipe off his chin, right? And, and, and as dad comes close, dad's like, here's a stone. See, a stone and artisan bread from a distance would look close. And so Jesus is saying, not only do you as sinful fathers, don't, you don't even give bad gifts, but, but here there would be a deception to this. You know how to give good gifts. You don't deceive your kid in giving good gifts. When I put the tickets in, in Elijah's glove that I gave him, that we gave him, they weren't tickets to last week's game. He'd be like, you're evil. You're mean. Jesus is like, if you sinful people have figured this out, what do you think? What do you think a holy, perfect, loving, gracious, abundant father will do with his gifts? What do you think? What do you think? And then the whole fish and the snake thing. It's the same exact deal. If a kid asks for fish, man, Dad, I would love some tilapia for dinner tonight. Can you, can you do that? And from a distance, the, the son sees the dad bring the, bring the fish up or, or what looks like a fish. And then, then you're like, a snake. A snake doesn't look like a fish. But, but, but actually, our translations, for some reason, we keep getting it wrong here. Uh, think sea snake. Think eel. So the kid thinks he's got like this fresh tilapia coming up here. And then he gets up here and there's this, this nasty, gross, unedible eel. You're like, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? As Jesus is saying, if you guys as sinful people, this is the funny part. If you guys as sinful people have figured out how to give, give good gifts, what do you think your holy, loving, perfect, gracious abundant heavenly father does in giving gifts and if we want to overcome if we want to make sure our heart doesn't wander and we don't have vision drift towards towards scarcity that we're not drifting towards scarcity remember remember the abundance of our heavenly father remember the abundance of our heavenly father because he gives abundantly and graciously and lovingly. And we give that because he's wired that into us to give good gifts. Some of you are better than that than others. And wives, you know that. But he's wired it into us to give good gifts because he wants to point to himself as the abundant gift giver. And some of you may say, but I've been waiting for something for a long time. Well, Jesus gives no pretension to the amount of time that God will give the gifts. That the whole, that's the idea of the whole ask, seek, knock. Ask is ask. Seek is asking with action. Knock is asking with action and perseverance. Some of you, some of you as parents, some of you as leaders in your businesses and stuff, you do this. Some of you want to see if your kid or if your employee really wants it. They come up, they make a request, and you're like, okay, I'm going to give you everything you need to, to fulfill this request. I want to see if you want it bad enough. Some of you parents have done that. Some of, some, some of you bosses have done that. I want to see if you really want it bad enough. 
And sometimes God does that with us as well. Do you really want this gift? Do you really want it? Sometimes he'll provide after asking. Sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll provide after seeking. So some ask with some, with, some, with some feet to it. With some feet to the ask. But sometimes he makes us persevere for a long time before he gives us the gift. But Jesus is telling us, remember, 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 remember. Your loving, gracious, holy, perfect, abundant, heavenly Father. Keep on persisting. God will give it to you. Sometimes the gift that he gives is a change of perspective and what we're actually praying for, and that's the gift. But God will give us the gift. And so this, isn't, this is going back to talk about God's provision, but it's going back to talk about God's provision and how it ha- deals with us and how we treat other people. That we understand that we treat people with abundance because we have an abundant God. And when we drift towards scarcity, we remember we have an abundant God. And that pulls us back into abundance. And when we do this, we will live out the disciples' creed. The very next statement you know. I think all of us will probably know. Some of you know it. Maybe you don't even realize it was from the mouth of Jesus or from the Bible. We know it as something different. But I call it the disciples' creed. Because I like to just kick the goat a little bit. What is it? 712. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. This is the disciples' creed. As we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and if we have an abundant mindset, we will do for others exactly what we want them to do for you, or to to do for us, because we want everybody to be abundant towards us. Right? We do. And Jesus is going, are you willing to be abundant to other people? Side note on how this works. If you follow business at all, if you follow um, recent trends in business, there's a strand of what is being taught out there of, of, of abundance. Treat people with abundance in your business and you will be treated with abundance as well. And all I would have to say to that is, Exactly. This is what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Thanks for helping us out here. It's a good way to treat people, whether it's a business, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's people in your own family. If you want your underwear picked up. Anyway. So Disciples Creek. And you notice what Jesus does here? This is the entirety of the Law and the Prophets. Boils it down to one sentence. You can memorize it in 90 seconds. Memorable and portable. Memorable and portable. He makes it simple. The entire Law and the Prophets, they're great. I love every word. Here's what you need to know. Do to others what you want them to do to you. That's what you need to know. Everything else flows out of that. Like I've told other people with the Sermon on the Mount, if the time came, or if we moved to a country where the Bibles were being taken away, and the Gestapo was knocking on our door, I would advise you, rip out Matthew 5-7, through stick it in your pocket, and go memorize it. 
Here's why. Jesus just said, this is the interpretation of the Old Testament from God himself. This is the interpretation of the Old Testament. This is what you need to know for the New Testament, our time period. This is how it bridges together. This is what it looks like to follow me and live a life of following me. Rip it out, stick it in your pocket, and memorize it. This is everything we need to know. All the rest of the 66 books are simply pointing back to Matthew 5 through 7, or forward or back to Matthew 5 or 7, 5 through 7. Do to others what you would like them to do for you. That's an abundant mindset. This is the same mindset Jesus showed up with. The night before Jesus' death, he got his boys, and he went up to the upper room to celebrate Passover. Right? Most of us know this story. Jesus went up to the upper room to celebrate Passover with his boys. And any time that you would come into a house, uh, the least of all servants would wash the feet of everybody in attendance. It was uh, a a day where they didn't take showers every day. Um, And uh, the Mediterranean is about 110 degrees in double shade. And it's dusty roads. It's the same roads that camels and donkeys and horses travel. You might drift. And uh, I'm sure the boys were walking along and Peter stepped in it. And all the boys are giving Peter a hard time. Oh, you stepped in it and you followed that camel and you stepped in it. And I can't believe you stepped in it. But then they got to the upper room and they reclined at the table. And their tables weren't like our tables. We, their tables were low on the, on the ground, and they laid in front of their tables. So then the boys are just like, Peter, you smell. You're awful. I can't believe you stepped in it. We could do something about that. Oh, our food's coming out, and your feet are in. Oh, that's disgusting. But there's no servant. It was a rented room. There's no servant to wash everybody's feet. So Jesus got up. Took off his outer garment. I wouldn't advise that for your, if you had guests at your home, but that's what they did in that day. Wrapped a towel around him and washed the feet of all his disciples. But have you ever noticed why? Have you ever noticed why he washed their feet? Because they were stinky? No, no, no. That was a byproduct. That was a byproduct. I was reminded of that this week as I was reading uh, through my quiet times of, of, of why Jesus washed their feet. See if you catch it. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world. He was going to die and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. Isn't that a great sentence? He loved his disciples while his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. He knew that one was going to betray. He knew that they were all going to scatter. He knew that one was going to deny, but it specifically says he loved them. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and we returned to God. You see, catch that. Jesus knew he was the most important person in the room, 
In Jerusalem, in the world, in the universe. Jesus knew he had all authority over the entire universe. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this. So, the smallest words in the Bible are the strongest. I love conjunctions. Those of you that were with us in the first Ephesians series know I love conjunctions. As you read the Bible, take a look at the conjunctions. So, this has to do with purpose, right? He knew all of this. He was going to die. He knew he loved his disciples. He knew one was going to betray him. He knew the rest were going to scatter. He knew that one was going to deny. He knew he was the most important person in the room, the world, and the universe. So, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Jesus had an abundance mindset. He had been given everything by the Father, and instead of hoarding it, he gave it all away. And in that moment, he symbolized that by washing the disciples' feet. The greatest in the room became the least. And what did Jesus tell the disciples after he did this? As I have done for you, you go do the same thing. And that's the challenge to every one of us. He has given us abundance. Abundance of provision and abundance of righteousness. As he has given us, we go do the same thing. And so imagine those people around you that have nothing to do with God and expect you to have nothing to do with them because they expect you to judge them. You coming up to them and going, what burden do you have? How can I help you? How can I help you with that burden? I know you're feeling the weight of that. How can I help you? Imagine what that will do for the people around you. When people come in to this building, but it's only a building, when people come in to this people, with burdens, and either directly or indirectly, through our words and our actions, we say, what can I do to help you carry your burden? What can I do for you to help you carry your burden? Imagine what that will do for the people around us. Because who wouldn't want to be a part of that environment? See, the whole switch to one service, a lot of it has to do with this exactly right here. Of making sure everybody who walks in these doors are connected with somebody who's willing to carry their burdens. And for this one week, I want to ask if some of you would like to hang around and make sure that the people who walk in the second service have people here to help them carry their burdens so that next week we all can be together saying I'm here to help you carry your burdens as the band plays do you need to repent of um, judgmental attitudes because it's a sin that we need to repent on and the longer we've been in church 
the easier it is to fall into this sin. Do we need to remind ourselves of the abundance that God has given us? Do we have somebody in mind that maybe God is putting on our heart to say, you need to repair something with this person? Has put, God put somebody on your mind, as I was talking about it, that, that you need to help them carry their burden and you need to take the first step in, in doing that? Or, or, do you need to just simply praise God for His abundance through song? Respond as God has laid on your heart. I'll be here. Shelly will be here to pray with people. Or grab somebody you trust to pray with, pray with you. But otherwise, move as God is leading you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your abundance. We thank you for how great you are and what you've given to us. And Lord, I just pray that we all can be abundant towards other people. That we can have a culture of abundance. That people that walk in here, they don't know, they, they're not quite sure what's going on, but they feel the abundance before they even know that it's abundance. Lord, for those of us that, that, that judge, and when we do, I pray that we feel the weight of that and that we ask your forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you can put people on our minds. My neighbor flashed into my mind as I was talking about the burden thing. I pray that you give people, uh, peop- give these people people that need their burden carried. Give us the boldness to start that. And the words to say to help them. Lord, help us. Put in us a heart overflowing of thankfulness and celebration for the abundance you've given us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us. And as I said, move and respond based on how God is leading you.